Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie Nu from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and thank you for listening to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I chat with a friend and colleague that I have known since we started training together, who is now a supervisor of training and very involved with education at the college, Dr. Cara Allen. Now, I won't lie, when I first sat down to do this podcast with Cara, I thought it would be a podcast for residents who've just gotten onto the training program and we'd be providing some tips and tricks for how to navigate your first year of being an anaesthetic registrar. But Cara is such a wealth of information about medical education that we ended up talking about not just that first transition into being a registrar, but also subsequent transitions such as when you move from being a registrar to a provisional fellow and then on to becoming a specialist and practicing in your own independent right. We also talk about how even though you may be a specialist and fully qualified, that you never got completely comfortable with anaesthetizing paediatric patients or perhaps always felt a little bit rusty about vascular anesthesia. We also talk about how if you're someone like me who's gone down a few different career paths, how there can be certain moments that cause you to pause and reflect. So I believe there's something in this episode for everyone, no matter what your stage in your career. And because we talk about so much, it reminded me of so many resources from the Australian Society of Anesthetists. And I'll go through those at the end of the episode. There's one event that I wanted to mention up front, which is in May every year, and that is specifically for residents or pre-vocational doctors who are trying to get onto the anaesthetic training program. We've hosted it for a few years now. It's called Super Saturday, as the name implies. It's held on a Saturday. It's a chance for people who are interested in a career in anaesthesia to come and find out what's involved in getting on the training program, as well as meet some registrars who've recently gotten onto the training program to find out what they did in order to achieve that next step in their career. This year, we are proud to be partnering with PVAX, which stands for the Pre-Vocational Anaesthetic and Critical Care Society. So this is a little shout out for them. If you are a resident or an intern and you are interested in getting into anaesthesia or ICU, then I do suggest you check them out. That's the Pre-Vocational Anaesthetics and Critical Care Society. All right, as I said, I'll share more resources at the end of the episode, but for now, let's get into it. Thank you, Cara, for giving up some time today. We are chatting about what it's like for new trainees who are joining the training program. I should make a disclosure that it's been a little while since I joined the training program because <laughs> we, of course, trained together. Yeah. But I think the thing is that now with the work that we've been doing, just providing a bit of background to some of the things that I've seen coming out and providing more of a bird's eye perspective than a personal perspective because I know you've had people on who've talked about training and exams. Great and before we go into that let's get a little bit of background on you. You're currently supervisor of training at a big tertiary hospital in Melbourne. Yep. How long have you been doing that for now? Oh good question about seven or eight years. Wow so you would have seen a lot of trainees coming through. Yeah, quite a few who came in as HMOs, seen them go through the training program and they're now in their early consultant years, which is really nice. That's nice. Have you got a number of SOTs in your department? Yes, we have. I think officially we have four at the moment and we're just about to appoint a fifth. And we've had quite a number of the senior staff and ACDS have had a stint as SOTs as well. Yeah, it's good to see the leadership roles being rotated through the department as well. 
Yeah, I think that's really important because it provides expertise within the department. But I also think it's good for the trainees because Mm. they might not want to approach an SOT with something because that's an official college role, whereas they're quite comfortable approaching somebody who's in a mentor role. So yeah, it just means that those people have had experience of being SOT and so therefore can give advice that's really relevant to a situation. And with a team of SOTs like you have there, do you divide it up at all in terms of who's looking after, say, the introductory or the basic trainees and the advanced trainees? Yeah, we try and do that. And it's one of the things that we were talking about when we talked about training generally was this concept of transition periods. So my observation is that there is a transition from resident to registrar and from registrar to provisional fellow and from provisional fellow to consultant. And each of those has what in education terms we might describe as a threshold concept, which has a few kind of features, but a couple of those features are that it can be quite uncomfortable to go through that process. And the other feature is that it's permanent. Once you've crossed that threshold, you can't then go back to that state. Mm, Interesting. Before I dive into that threshold change, that transition from RMO to introductory trainee, I just wanted to dive into your background with the college because I know you've done a lot of work with education in the college as well. Yeah, so I'm the Deputy Chair of the Education Development and Evaluation Committee and that means that I also sit on the Education Executive Management Committee, which are titles that describe a group of people who are working together to try and make sure the curriculum reflects what we want SAFE and ESITAS to be able to do and the way that we assess that process is robust, defensible, fair, transparent, all of those things. It's great community of practice. And so I would say to anyone that's interested in doing some education stuff, that the college is a great place to do that because you'll work with people like Jenny Weller and Damien Castanelli and Kirsty Forrest and Leonie Watterson and Nav Sidhu. I'm I'm sure I've missed people out. It's always people. So apologies to anyone else that we have forgotten. We're still thinking of you. So I want to come back to that threshold concept and of it being uncomfortable and permanent. Yeah. So for example, it's interesting talking to people who are doing dual training. So for example, ANSCA training as well as CICM training. Mm. And they talk about finishing one or other and then going back into a trainee role and really having to consciously put themselves in that role of connecting with being supervised because they've moved into a supervisory capacity in their other role. Yes. And that, I think, reflects that sort of threshold concept. Yeah. A lot of people commonly say that they might have fellowed in one specialty and just say the idea of going back to being in a position where people are now telling me what to do. I don't think I can do that. And I might have started dual training, but I'm just going to leave it at one fellowship. Thank you very much. So that's interesting. So if they can navigate that threshold and go back to that position that might help them get through that second training program. Yeah. And when I'm talking to trainees, sometimes I'll reference that in terms of making decisions around what are some of the things that are built into the training program that are supportive of those threshold transitions And what are times where you might have a little bit more control over how you respond or how you navigate that transition through the program? Because I think sometimes people come at giving trainees advice around their own personal experience of Mm. training. So when Mm. I sat exams here and that worked for me and I had a baby here and that worked for me and I took a year off here or did this or whatever, 
And actually, there's probably lots of external influences that affect how people progress and how they might navigate those transitions. And so I think broad advice whilst it seems a little vague, is sometimes able to be translated because all the trainees are intelligent people, right? Mm. And they're all in different social circumstances and have different life experiences that mean that they might prefer to take a year off a different stage just when somebody else did it. But the broad understanding of the ebbs and flows of the training program and those transitions can sometimes be helpful in terms of thinking about how am I going to make choices around what I do for my fellowship or when I sit my exams. You did mention there for people who never make those transitions. Is that meaning people who don't make it through the training program? Some of it are circumstantial. So for example, I practice at a tertiary hospital that doesn't do a lot of paediatrics. My comfort level with paediatrics is a lot lower than say somebody like yourself who does a lot more paediatrics. And so I would say in some ways that's dragged out crossing the mm. threshold for me. In, it's a slightly artificial concept, I guess, but if I have a pediatric case for some reason, I'll still get out my Frank Shen and do my drug calculations and double check my endotracheal size and all of that sort of stuff. Whereas somebody like yourself, all of that stuff is just at brainstem reflex level. Mm. And I guess there's a bit of overlap there with that competent sort of scale of moving from Mm. being consciously competent at doing something, which is still a bit uncomfortable because you're still thinking about it, still requiring some of your cognitive load through to what might be known as a fluency heuristic where you're problem solving really quickly. You're anticipating and planning and problem solving without really putting too much energy, too much cognitive load into it. And so for me, I'm certainly not at a fluency heuristic stage for anything more than the most basic pediatric case. Whereas for somebody who does a lot more peds, they'll be really comfortable with it, really able to juggle lots of stuff. Yeah. So that's just an example of something where that kind of discomfort can last a lot longer. Yeah. One thing I find is that people don't anticipate how their practice will narrow once they finish. Yes. I was just going to mention that actually. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really reassuring to me to have a conversation with one of my colleagues about five years out. And I was like, I haven't been doing a lot of pediatrics. And he was like, yeah, you find he's, I haven't done a vascular case in a long time. I'd have to really think about it. And I was like, oh, really? What's to think about? Yes. Yeah. And If you're not doing that regularly, you do have to put a lot more effort into thinking about it and planning for it. Exactly. What you're saying there applies not just to trainees, but for people throughout their career. And I had a really interesting experience the other day. I went to a resuscitation that was in a different environment, wasn't in the operating theatre, and it was an airway emergency. So the patients, the team were reliant on me managing Mm. this patient and obtaining a definitive airway. And afterwards, I thought I used to work in retrieval. I used to work outside the operating theatre. I used to work Mm. in austere environments all the time. And this sort of stuff wouldn't have phased me. I would have had the heuristics. It would have been, okay, this is a messy airway. We just get on Mm. and do it. And I thought afterwards, like, ah, I was a bit slow. I would have done that quicker. I would have been a bit more pushy about reassessing it my way, not taking someone else's way. You're always self-critical, I think, after a resuscitation. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. So two things really stand out to me in what you just said then, which is both that a lot of things. So I'll I'll try and stick with two, but like that first thing of I'm not with my team in my familiar space. And again, as a trainee, that's a really common thing is that you're moving from job to job. It might be three months or four months. If you're lucky, it might be six months. But I remember when I got my fellow job that was for a whole 12 months and I was like, finally, I can establish some relationships because that's so critical, isn't it? Mm. 
Mm. And particularly the relationship with your anaesthetic nurses where they say, would you like CMAC for this next case? And the answer to that is almost always yes. Yes. If someone suggests it, just say yes. (laughs) (laughs) If you think I need that, then I've got to have a good reason for saying no. Exactly. And also just like your reflection that it's been a hot minute since I was in an austere environment and doing retrieval. And so we move from fluency heuristic back to unconscious competence through to conscious competence. And if you've been unconsciously competent at something and you're suddenly consciously competent at it, that's actually a really uncomfortable place to be. Mm. Hear a lot from people who are returning to work after a significant period of leave. If they're objectively assessed, they're still competent, but their confidence has taken a hit, which is a different thing. Yes. And like you say, it does prompt reflection about your performance and what could I have done differently? And if I was more used to doing this type of thing, what would I do differently? And Mm. a lot of the times the answer is not a lot. Sometimes there is something we can learn from it. Say yes to the video laryngoscope when it's offered. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's it. I think you're right, though. When you're just doing it at brainstem level, you don't have the internal dialogue. You just have, this is how I do it. And then when you suddenly don't have it at brainstem level, you can't say, this is how we're going to do it. You just say, I'm going to try my best. And hopefully you're just going to say yes to the good suggestions that come along. For sure. The patient made it to ICU, so that's okay. Great work. Well, okay work. I wanted to come back to one of the things that I notice with residents who are now transitioning into registrars. The one that I really see is when they start to brace that they are coming into a specialty where they will have to work independently. So they would have worked independently on the ward. They can put in cannulas. They can assess patients who are deteriorating. They would have had some responsibility in ICU rotations at emergency departments. And one of the things that I'll often say to trainees in those first few weeks is, okay, you watch the anaesthetic. I'll do the paperwork. And there's this moment of, oh, this is my career of actually making those decisions. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that from an educational point of view? Is that a threshold? Yeah, absolutely. I think that transfer of responsibility is a big threshold concept throughout. Moving from resident to registrar, which is what you've described, and almost feeling, as you say, it's almost like a step back in responsibility in some respects because you have been doing some independent stuff. And now all of a sudden you're working with people who are like, no, that's not how you take the art line. I remember when I started NSC, I was like, wow, these people really care about their IV access. And <laughs> now as a consultant, I'm like, don't give me micropore. I want some blend in. I remember thinking as a registrar, <laughs> after being told off for not taping something a particular way, I remember saying to myself, when I become a specialist, I'm not going to be one of those. But guess what? I do it all the time. (laughs) That is the best description of a threshold concept I've ever come across (laughs) is that I'm just going to take the IV with whatever to, no, I have a preferred tape. So at the other end is not having that safety net of the consultant you can call on. And I was just saying this to somebody yesterday of, yes, you've been running the show after hours and you've been doing Caesars independently, going down to trauma calls and doing whatever, but now there's no one else. Now you are the person that they will come to with the questions and that's uncomfortable. Mm. And I have the same advice for the person who's finishing their training as I do for the person who's starting that training and it is that community is your friend. Mm. So having people around you who you trust to tell you the truth about yourself and your blind spots and your practice Mm. and who you can bounce questions and ideas off of, that is invaluable and it is 
absolutely critical, I believe, to longevity in anesthesia. Definitely. I will die on that hill. (laughs) (laughs) That's one amazing tip. So everyone at any stage in their career, whether it's in anesthesia or not, I think really needs to follow that advice that is outstanding. All right. So let's look at people who are quick care residents and they've got, it's like the golden ticket to the Willy Wonka chocolate factory nowadays. They've got the training position. Some of the things that they're going to be considering, I know the big thing is exams and I've already done another podcast on that. And you mentioned before, we want to take a bit more of a global bird's eye view. So let's not dive into that, even though that's what most people will be asking about. Let's think about the many other things that they should be considering. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Susie, because the exams are a big focus and they're expensive and they're time consuming and there's a lot of energy and effort that goes into them. But there's also a lot of assessments that's part of the training program itself. There's all the WBAs, the workplace-based assessments that form part of the portfolio that helps your SOT generally, but also your SSUs, make what's called a progression decision. So have you met the requirements for this particular section of the curriculum? And for people who are just new to the program who don't know what an SSU is, do you want to just explain what that is? Sure, yeah. So the specialised study unit. So there's obstetrics and gynaecology and colorectal and general surgery, or there's neurosurgery and neuroradiology or vascular and cardiothoracic. So each type of anesthesia fits into one of those SSUs. person who assesses that is often different to the SOT. So again, that leadership's distributed across the department. Correct. I can say that because I'm a paediatric SSU supervisor. Yes. Are they all clinical, the SSUs? Yes, all the SSUs focus on clinical practice. Not medical education or leadership. Yes. So when you think about the roles that we're expected to play in practice, we use the CanMeds framework, which comes out of the Canadian Royal College. That's got roles like scholar, medical educator, medical expert. So we're really focusing on the medical expert clinician component of that. As you're alluding to, there's also the scholar roles activities, which need to be accomplished at various stages of the training. And those include things like teaching a skill, performing an audit, being able to read and evaluate research, all of that sort of stuff. Agreed. So I could imagine for usually a quick care RMO who's now coming into the training program and they're hearing this, they might be feeling a little bit overwhelmed. There's the expensive, scary exam. Mm. Plus now there's these workplace-based assessments trying to get their head around all these acronyms like SSUs and SOTs. What could they be doing to prepare for the start of their registrar year? Yeah, great question. So I often talk with the HMOs who work at my hospital about this and just say, The best place to start is actually with the training document at ANSCA, just getting a sense of particularly what's expected in the first year. So your first year of training is divided into two six-month parts. And the first six months is introductory training or IT. And there's particular WBAs, workplace-based assessments that you need to accomplish in that. And there's also other requirements doing some kind of ALS certification, whether that's an ALS one course or a half day through your department or whatever it is, for example. And at the end of that is a process of assessment. So it's called the Initial Assessment of Anesthetic Competency or IAAC. And the idea being that there's a collection of skills and knowledge that you're able to achieve. And who does that IAAC and what format does it take? So normally that happens within the department and at the moment it's very variable and that's one of the things the college has been looking at to try and provide a degree of standardisation because we're getting reports that in some places it was like 
watch somebody do a machine check and ask them two or three questions and then it gets ticked off. And in other places, it was like a full MCQ that trainees had to sit. So obviously the college is concerned that there's a particular standard that is met, but also that is equitable so that Mm. we're not putting trainees through their paces in one part of the country and then in another part of the country. It's, yep, you're all good. It's not necessarily a single day assessment. So for example, if you're working in a unit that does a lot of obstetric epidurals, that in the first two weeks, there's a real focus on getting you competent so that for the remainder of your six months in that unit, you're able to perform those independently. And by the end of that six months that you're able to anaesthetize a simple case in a healthy patient. That first six months as an introductory trainee, you've got one-to-one level supervision, isn't it? that you've always got a consultant with you. Thank you for bringing that up because that has been a topic of lots of discussion. Mm -hmm. The college has said that for that introductory training period, there must always be a consultant available to that trainee. Mm -hmm. And that consultant should know what the case is and how the trainee is anaesthetising the case. But there is some flexibility about whether or not the consultant is literally standing next to the trainee. Mm -hmm. Because we were getting questions around this idea of if you put a cannula in, which is a job that pretty much every trainee was doing independently on the ward prior to coming to theatre, you don't need a consultant standing there next to you while you do that. No. And then you, you can see the kind of progression through the skill levels of what about an arterial line, what about a central line, and then not just procedures but clinical decision-making. So mm. is it time to turn the SIBO down at the end of the case? That those sorts of questions that people who are new to anaesthesia wrestle with a little bit. And it also was a bit artificial to just suddenly flick the switch at the end of six months and say, now you're good to anaesthetise an ASA 2 or an ASA 3 for a lap appendix with no consultant support or consultant support from home. So it's a progression. And I think the important thing that I would say is that, A, first of all, the consultant working with the trainee is aware of the trainee's level. And one hopes that that is always the case. And also, ideally, that the consultant and the trainee have a conversation around what the learning goals for the trainee are, what they particularly want to focus on in terms of do they want to focus on airway management or induction or positioning the case or documentation? What is it that they particularly want to focus on? And that the consultant is there to provide support so that the trainee can achieve their learning goals within that particular area of interest. What are the workplace-based assessments that introductory trainees are looking at doing in that first six months? Regulation 37, if you just Google it's publicly available, covers the training program. It's about 20 pages long. It's quite helpful for just understanding how much time is required and what various stages actually mean. And it's a good thing to have a look through before you start your training program because it gives you a bit of a sense of where some of the holdups might be. In terms of introductory training, there's three aspects to introductory training, the volume of practice, the workplace-based assessment and courses, And then that culminates in the IAAC, which is the assessment of all of that. A lot of courses that you take as part of your training are actually non-assessment courses. They're purely for learning. Making you a better clinician. Yes. So the WBAs that form part of the initial assessment of anaesthetic competency are three DOPS, which is a direct observation of procedural skills, Mm -hmm. and six mini CEX, which is a mini clinical evaluation exercise. And this is where I say that the way that the DOPS forms and the CEX forms are structured is that there's a scale and the trainee self registers on the scale and then the supervisor picks where the trainee is up to as well. 
The other thing I should say is that provisional fellows can also do workplace-based assessments for other trainees. If you're working with a provisional fellow, that doesn't mean that you can't get them to do a WBA for you. Oh, okay. That's good to know. So the scale is kind of broadly three parts is how I describe it. So it reflects the entrustability. That's a big educational word, the entrustability of the procedure. And what that means is how likely it is that I could leave the trainee completely to their own devices to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And I think what can be tricky is that if we think about those things, so we've got preoperative airway assessment. Can I leave a trainee to do a preoperative airway assessment without feeling like I need to step in? That's a relatively low threshold to cross versus bag mask ventilation and LMA insertion that might be a higher threshold to cross because we all know that things can go awry with both of those things. And if they do, then I need to be a very short distance away. Yeah. And so early on in your IT, you might not be able to troubleshoot LMA insertion particularly fluently and you might find bag mask ventilation gets a bit hard or gets a bit tiring or it's a bit trickier to troubleshoot as well. And so that limits the amount that I can entrust that activity to the IT. Mm -hmm. So it would be really unusual for me to score an introductory trainee as a nine on bag mass ventilation LMA insertion, simply because that essentially says, I think they've got all the skills they need to perform this task completely independently with no input from me whatsoever. Yep. Now, a provisional fellow would absolutely get a nine for that. That's a no-brainer which doesn't mean that they should never call for help. Sometimes they will still need a second pair of hands or a second brain room. But an introductory trainee still needs active supervision. I think people can sometimes feel bad that they're quote unquote scoring a three on those first WBAs. It's not a fail. You don't need to repeat it. It's a recognition that you've got room to grow. And most people will take a bit of time to cross that threshold, as you say, unless you've done something like being a paramedic before you came into anaesthetic training. Yeah, absolutely. How long does it take to cross some of these thresholds? How much expectation should trainees be putting on themselves for some of these? Yeah, such a great question. I feel like we had this conversation after our second part, Susie, where it was like, <laughs> I felt really good about things. And now all of a sudden I've studied for my second part and I'm super worried about all the things that can go wrong. <laughs> you know what you don't know all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's so many variables. So there'll be people who feel really comfortable doing obstetric anesthesia where everything's going great and everybody expects 100% good outcome all of the time and then all of a sudden things go horribly wrong and you've got to manage that and stay calm and all of that sort of thing. And then there's going to be other people that prefer to do big long neuro cases where there's nothing happening for a while and then it goes terribly wrong as well. So when we think about what you might want to do as your consultant career, you don't get that choice as a trainee. You're rotated through everything and there might be some things that just feel uncomfortable a lot of the time and that's okay because not every part of anesthesia is going to be for everyone. So I would say that there's no point at which you should say this is problematic because I still feel uncomfortable about X, Y, Z because sometimes that discomfort with things can actually be good. If we look at the morbidity and mortality data, a lot of it's from inadequate anesthetic assessment or inadequate planning. And so getting too comfortable can mean that you're not doing the things that you need to do to keep the patient safe. This is a very, very broad overview. So I would say by mid first year of training, so at the end of IT, people are feeling like they actually understand what the practice of anesthesia looks like, that it's different from ward-based work 
Mm. and they're getting a sense of what it's like to work with a consultant all the time, which is, again, something that's really different from a lot of other specialties. Mm-hmm. But they're aware that there's a lot that they don't know. There's lots of eponymous procedures. There's subspecialty anesthesia that they may not have had any contact with. There can be really sick patients. They may have had a crisis or two that's keeping them relatively grounded. Or they may have had a really kind of dream run and they're feeling pretty relaxed and pretty good. So by the mid-year, they've got a bit of a sense of what anesthesia looks like. By the end of first year, I often find that people are so deep in exam study that they've almost lost that broad picture. Yes. It comes back. Don't worry. Yes, it does. Exactly. It's not until they've sat their first part and that is out of the way that they come up for air and start thinking about what skills do I want to learn? What interests me? What do I enjoy? Mm. And that's the time where I say to people, have a break after you've passed your exam but make sure that you keep your finger on the pulse of the scholar role stuff because it can get out of control pretty quickly Mm. if you don't have a plan. And the other thing I would say is that if you want to do your fellowship overseas, that is the time to start thinking about it in between the two exams. So for some people who know that's what they want to do, for them it makes sense to get the first part out of the way reasonably quickly so that Mm. they can focus on getting some of the other stuff taken care of because if you are going to do your whole provisional fellow year overseas, then you really only have four years in Australia to get all of the stuff done. It's, it's, overseas training is not set up for getting ANSCA requirements done as a general rule. Oh, I see. And so there'll be still requirements in their provisional fellow year, such as WBAs or yes. they would have to tick off, but they've lost that opportunity because they're doing a fellowship overseas. More I'm thinking things like getting their audit signed off. Uh, scholar role things. Yes, being in a department that's got a scholar role tutor means that you've got that kind of easy access to somebody who knows how to help you achieve those goals. Whereas once you go overseas, it's a different setup. Yes. You do still have WBAs you need to do and they need to be in your provisional fellow year. So that's an MSF and I think two case-based discussions. But it's not a particularly onerous group of WBAs and they can be done anywhere. It's more you should have all your volume of practice ticked off. You should have all but 52 weeks of your time ticked off and you should have all your scholar role activities ticked off. And there's just a lot less flexibility if you're saying, right, from February of my provisional fellow year, I'm going to be overseas. Yeah. Okay. That's a good tip. So squeeze all those things into four years rather than five. Yeah. Is there anything else that you would like to say about training and transitions throughout training and particularly congratulations for people who are coming into their first year of being a registrar? Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I'll acknowledge, going back to what you said at the beginning about it's the golden ticket to get a training position, I'm very aware that there's a lot of people who are trying to get on the training program or who've taken roles that aren't necessarily linked with the training program. And depending on where you are in Australia and Aotearoa, it might be quite a challenging sort of thing, like having a year-to-year contract, for example, and some uncertainty about volumes of practice and things like that. So I guess there's two things that I want to say to that, which is that, first of all, that you always have consultants around you who are keen to support you and who will give you advice if you ask for it. So don't be shy about reaching out to people and asking questions about training progression and what their experiences were. And that's as an important learning as lots of the other stuff that takes place in theatre. And I guess I just also want to acknowledge that there's lots of people working in the college who recognise that's a really challenging place to be. 
and we're trying to work on some processes and some resources and things like that to support people who are in those positions of some uncertainty around training positions and employment. And I guess the other thing that I would say is the vast majority of people that I interview for training positions are eminently employable. They are excellent doctors. They are compassionate people. Some of them have done amazing things outside of medicine. And in the same way that not passing an exam on a first attempt doesn't reflect on who you are as a person, not getting on a training program on your first attempt also doesn't reflect on who you are as a person or a doctor. It's just, it's a fine art resource. And I wish I could offer a position to everyone who was employable. We just don't have the capacity to do that at the moment. Wow. Lovely words there, Cara. Thanks for saying that. I think it's good to try and reach out to people and support them in the best way that we can. And hopefully they'll find it's reassuring that the college is also really looking at this and hopefully there might be some changes coming. All right. Thank you so much for your time today. Always wonderful chatting with you. And I'm sure the trainees out there will find this useful. Thanks, Susie. Lovely to see you too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as Kara and I did. I love catching up with someone who's just so intelligent and has such a great sense of humor. Anyway, we have a lot to unpack. So what did I mention at the start? Super Saturday is a Saturday event, usually in May. It's for our pre-vocational doctors, interns who are looking to getting onto the anesthetic training program. Come along to that and pick other people's brains about what they did to get onto the program. This year, we're partnering with PVACS, the Pre-Vocational Anesthetics and Critical Care Society. And if you want to find out more about that event and register, then please head to the ASA events page. You do need to be a member of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists to be able to register. However, if you are a pre-vocational doctor, then membership is complimentary. So it is a free event, but you do need to be organised and register in time. Before I unpack any further resources, if you did enjoy that conversation and want to read more about medical education, then I can point you to the March 2023 edition of Australian Anaesthetist. That's the coffee table type magazine that is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. I'll put a link to that in the notes below. In fact, I'll put a link to everything that I'm about to talk about in the notes below. If you're listening on your favourite podcast player like Apple Podcasts or whatever, then just scroll down. Look for the links. On my app, they're highlighted in blue as a hyperlink. Some of them you will need to be an ASA member to be able to access, but the link should still take you there once you've logged in. All right, so the March 2023 edition of Australian Anesthetist, that is publicly available. You don't need to be an ASA member to access that. And that is chock-a-block full of articles about medical education. With all those resources, I thought I would go through things in chronological order in terms of our career stages. So if you are a pre-vocational doctor or you are an early stage anaesthetic trainee, then we have a new set of videos that are available on our YouTube channel. They're called Discovering Anesthesia. They're brief videos that will hopefully give you little snippets on how to navigate those first few stages in your anaesthetic career, such as tips for cannulation, how to take anaesthetic histories, those sorts of things. We have some very hardworking team members behind the scenes. They're putting together more videos. So do keep an eye out on our YouTube channel for those. There's, of course, a lot of resources for trainees on the Australian Society of Anaesthetists website. I would suggest going to the ASA Ed, which stands for education page, as your first port of call. Cara and I did talk about a few podcasts in our conversation. So one of them was episode 46 which is called I'm on the training program, now what? And the focus of that is on the part one exams. 
Thank you very much to the wonderful doctors Kaylee Jordan and Hamish Lanyon for joining me on that one. You can hopefully find that in your podcast library. Otherwise, it is there on the ASA page if you go to the trainee resources page. Also, there is episode 70 of the Australian Anesthesia podcast, which is called From Overseas to Australian Specialist Anesthetist. And in that episode, I chat with the wonderful Dr. Amritha, who gives us her insights about how she navigated the path of being a specialist international medical graduate. Cara did mention the ANSCA training regulations. I'll put a link to that. She said it was in particular training regulation number 37 that you should be looking out for which I can confirm is a PDF that anyone can access and it gives you all the things that are required for the ANSCA training program. Some other things that we talked about is maintaining fluency in your practice and that is where the Australian Society of Anesthetists Anesthesia recipe book might come in handy. So these are some short videos which are designed to give you a brief refresher, not teach you how to do an anesthetic from scratch. But as Cara and I talk about, your practice can really narrow as a specialist. And one thing I found really interesting when I've been talking to the contributors for the recipe book is how often they'll say, oh, there's not really that much to know. And I'm amazed at how much of that information is just at brainstem level for them. So the idea behind the recipe book is I'm picking the brains of people who do particular anesthetics all the time and have done hundreds, maybe thousands of cases. And we're gathering all their tips and tricks as well as some of the basics all together in a brief video. So I'm really looking forward to adding to that collection. Hopefully I might be able to share some of your recipes as well in the future. All right. And the other thing that I love is Cara will die on this hill. That community is your friend. And I cannot emphasize that enough. And I also understand how challenging that can be for some people who've, for whatever reason, move countries, move cities, just been in a different life situation. So we have been doing some work in establishing some peer groups within the Australian Society of Anesis. And there's been a lot of training that's been conducted in conjunction with hand-in-hand peer support. That's providing training for members of the Australian Society of Anesthetists as to how to become a supportive peer group member. And we're also encouraging anyone that would like to be in a peer support group to get in contact with us. The best way to do that is by emailing us at peersupport at asa.org.au. And as I said, I'll put their email address in the notes below. Finally, we didn't talk about it in this podcast, but if you're at that stage in your career, we are looking towards retirement. First of all, well done. I hope it's been a long and successful career for you. We do have a retired anaesthetic group in all of the states. So you can get in contact with us via your state or territory committee. Be involved with your local retired anaesthetic group. All right. Heaps of resources, heaps of ways for you to stay in contact, stay informed, get involved. If there's any that I've left out, then I sincerely apologize. Please do feel free to let me know on podcast at asa.org.au. And in the meantime, I hope you're staying well and happy and safe out there. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms, as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. The ASA was formed in 1934 and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anaesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge, and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. 
Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favorite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.